Uh, we are in 1 Peter, uh, finishing up chapter 4 of 1 Peter, and I do want to uh, challenge you to open a copy of God's Word for yourself, preferably one that you can mark, something you, somewhere that you can take notes and write down what God is going to tell you in these next few minutes, because in a sense, this is a battle briefing. And God will speak to you, I hope, through some things I say, but even more through his word and his spirit. And he might say something uh, that I don't say. Be ready to receive that, to hide it in your heart, and to obey. Be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. Just quickly reviewing, Peter is to the elect exiles uh, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. According to his great mercy, says Peter, he has caused us to be born again. I hope that's you this morning. I hope you've been born again and are aware that God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you have not or you're not sure, please come and talk to somebody after the service. We would be happy to help you be sure of that salvation through the grace of God. Uh, born again to what? To a living hope, this is all in chapter 1 by review, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is the apostle of hope in difficulty. There is a living hope. We are to set our minds on that living hope which is in heaven, unseen, kept for you, unfading, indestructible. Nothing can take away your joy because you have the richest daddy in the world and he's given you his inheritance. That's the preface of all that he says later, which is on the theme of suffering. The word suffer or suffering or suffered, some form of that word is used 19 times. I counted them this week. 19 times in this short little book of five chapters, Peter talks about suffering. Today's message is entitled, Glorifying Christ Through Suffering According to God's Will. Did you notice that phrase? There is suffering that God wills. Isaiah 53 says he it pleased the lord to bruise his son it's a mystery we don't understand how it can please god to put his flock his precious children through hard times but i started thinking about the glory that is mentioned you know glory is mentioned three times in this little passage that we're in uh his glory will be revealed. The spirit of glory is upon us. And let us glorify God in the name of Christ. Glory. We're seeking glory. And I started thinking about the World Cup, which is starting right now as we're meeting. The World Cup. Everybody wants glory, right, Brazilians? Viva Brasil. We want that sixth star. The glory of the, of the victory. The glory of the trophy. We need to fix our eyes on the glory of Christ that we will share as his flock, as part of his body in the end. Think of the, the training, the suffering that those football players have gone through over the last years to get to this point, already having defeated many just to be qualified, and now seeking to be the winner of that trophy. It hasn't been easy. There's been pain involved. 
There's been denying themselves uh, certain foods that they wanted to eat, probably. Certain activities that they couldn't do. Spending hours and hours in training, in strategy, in coaching to get the glory of the victory. That's what Peter is calling us to. The glory of Christ through suffering according to God's will. There's a, an important word right at the beginning, and I don't want us to miss it. Peter says, beloved. That means his own beloved. He's saying, I love you. That's why I'm writing to you. But he's saying more than that. He's saying, you are beloved of the Father. God's love has been revealed to you. Remember God's love because we love because he first loved us. I hope you hear the voice that Jesus heard on the mountain. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. You are loved eternally by God. If he has chosen you as his daughter and his son, and I can tell you he chose you to be here this morning to hear this, then you can open your mouth, open your mind, your ears, your heart, and hear every day that precious voice saying, I love you. You are my beloved. Before we get into talking about suffering, make sure you remember you are his beloved. But then there are three things that I want us to draw out of three paragraphs uh, by way of observation. So as we look at this text, I want us to see three points. Number one, don't be surprised. That's verses 12 and 13. Number two, don't be ashamed. Verses 14 to 16. And number three, obey the gospel. So number one, don't be surprised. Let's read verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Don't be surprised. Rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter's saying, expect to suffer along with the suffering servant. Don't be surprised. Rejoice and hope for that glory with Jesus. Notice that he doesn't say if. He doesn't say if trial, fiery trials come. He says when the fiery trial comes. As followers of Jesus with the cross on our shoulders, denying ourselves, we should expect life to be hard. You know, my dad was a jungle pilot in Colombia. And he used to, tongue-in-cheek, say, my job is to expect everything so that the unexpected cannot happen. Of course, he was joking because there's no way you can expect every contingency. But his job truly was to think, what are the dangers that could happen? What is the weather? How is my plane? How am I doing? Am I ready for any eventual contingency? As we wake up in the morning and say good morning to God and hear him say, you are my beloved, what do you expect your life to be like? As I was meditating on this, I thought about David. Little David, seeing Goliath and all the soldiers of Israel hiding, what did he do? Why are you afraid? Don't you expect there to be a battle? For victory to come, there has to be a fight. And what does he do? He runs to Goliath to the fight. 
expecting the struggle, but then expecting the victory because he had experienced the power of the Lord through him, even in caring for his flock. Joseph in jail for two years, unjustly continuing to serve well. We know that because he was put in charge of the jail. He didn't sit and lick his wounds in the cell. He's continuing to prove himself a servant in the name of God whom he trusted for two years in a jail unjustly. Paul, on his way to Jerusalem, and everybody says, don't go, don't go, you're going to suffer. And what does he say? Why are you breaking my heart? I'm ready to suffer, it's okay. I'm ready to die. He expected life to be hard in following the Lord Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean masochism. It doesn't mean you should buy a whip and flagellate yourself. But it does mean that following the suffering servant involves suffering in some specific ways that we will talk about in a little while. You know, it's basically what does normal life look like? We need to readjust our definition of a normal Christian life. Read Watchman Nee. He'll help you do that. The book's called The Normal Christian Life. And I was thinking about my brothers and sisters in Nepal. You know, life is hard. We were in a nice hotel, but there was no heat, and it was below zero centigrade. Frosty in the morning. Let me tell you, it was cold. Getting out of a shower on a stone floor was downright painful. And that didn't count the fact that most of those people were going to find firewood to keep their house warm and cook their food. They had farmed all summer and hopefully had enough to last them through the winter. We saw 60-year-old women carrying giant baskets of manure to put on their field so it would be fertilized for next season down the road with a huge basket. And I thought, I don't expect to have to do that. And if I think if I was made to do it, I would complain a lot. Because my definition of the normal life is pretty comfortable and secure. What's your definition? And how should it be redefined in order for you not to be surprised by a fiery trial according to God's will that comes for God's glory and for your eventual good. Second point is don't be ashamed. This is from verses 14, 15, and 16. Let's go back to the passage for a second just to make sure we don't stray from it. If you are insulted, this is from the ESV, by the way, for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit, that that word is capitalized in my translation, of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter's saying, don't shy away from a testimony that may cause you some emotional, psychological, or physical pain. Don't be ashamed of his name. The cross of Christ is offensive, and especially in a pluralistic world that believes that any way is a good way. It's good to have a religion, whatever religion is is okay. For you to declare that Jesus is the only way to reach God is offensive in that world. It was fascinating for me to be in the Hindu world of Nepal where they believe in Jesus because one more God is a good thing. More gods, the better. We'll just add him to our pantheon. They believe Buddha is the reincarnation of the Hindu god Shiva so they can just embrace it all. 
some point, I need to stand up and say, yeah, but Jesus said he's the only way. Either he's a liar or he's a lunatic or he's God. You don't have any other choice. Don't be ashamed to be a testimony for your Lord. One of the guys that was with Susanna and me at the South Asia conference had recently been put in prison for rescuing slaves from their sin and then from the land that they have been chained to for generations, trying to pay off generational debt that passes on to grandchildren and great-grandchildren. The landowners became so angry that they paid the local police chief to take him into custody and try to force him to confess to forced conversion. Because there's a law against forcing anyone to change religion. But our friend knew that he had not broken that law. He had simply proclaimed the hope he had in Christ and these precious poor slaves had believed. And some of us had been able to help them find a new piece of land and begin to work it for themselves. And the landowners were losing their cheap labor and they weren't happy. Well, he was held for two, two or three days and beaten with rods to try to get him to confess, which he never did. And the mayor found out about it and called him up and said, hey, I heard about what happened to you, and I'm so sorry. I really love what you're doing in our community. Everybody's really happy with what you're doing, except these people that own the land and live somewhere else. Would you come back and let me show you around and see how we can work together? Well, guess what? He went and helped them with a recent flood with donations through the mission, and over 200 people expressed faith in Jesus Christ. He said, Pastor Thomas, when can you come and do some more baptisms? Don't be ashamed. The power of transformation is the good news of Jesus Christ, and it works. It opens the door for eternal life, not only in you, but in the world around you. It needs to be proclaimed and obeyed. And that takes us to our third point. Don't be surprised at the trials. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Obey the gospel. Obey the gospel. Did you know the gospel is something to be obeyed and not just a, a religious maxim to be affirmed in your mind? I think so often when we say believe in Jesus, we think, oh, yeah, well, yeah, obviously, Jesus existed. I believe he's the son of God. That's cool. He died. And maybe, yeah, he even rose again. I got that box checked got eternal life, and I'm just going to do whatever I want. The gospel must be obeyed or it is not believed. And Peter says those who do not obey the gospel will be judged as unbelievers. The contrast is those of us who believe obey. Now what does that mean? It means at least four things, and here they are, and I don't have them on the PowerPoint, so you'll either need to memorize them or write them down. Number one, believe believe. Believe that God loves you and sent his son to be punished for your sins and to rise again so you and I can have eternal life if we repent and receive him as our Lord. That's the gospel. Believe it. Accept it. Receive him as your Lord and in the forgiveness of your sins. But there's more. Obey the Great Commission. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And here's my commandment. Love one another and make disciples. It's easy. Love each other, 
That'll be your main tool because by this love, people will know that you're his followers. And then tell them the reason for the hope that you have. Make disciples. Every disciple is involved in discipleship at some level. Not the same way, but at some level. You are saying to others, follow me as I follow Jesus. Hang out with me. Come on, let's play soccer together. Let's go have coffee. Let's spend time together. Call them up and say, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Listen to this verse I read this morning. In some way, make disciples. Discipleship is not primarily a Sunday school class. It's life on life, contagion with Jesus. Are you obeying the Great Commission? Number three, obeying the gospel means proclaiming the good news no matter what the cost means that you are dedicated to finding open doors to speak the truth in love. And Peter is clear when he says, be ready to give an answer, that you do it gently, not offensively, not in your face, not just because you have to or because you want to, but carefully planting the seed, scattering the seed everywhere you go. Find a way to tell the good news. I like to say, hey, have you heard the good news about Jesus? You know what usually happens? They think maybe there was a headline this morning about Jesus that they hadn't seen. And they say, no. And that's your chance to say, well, he loved us so much that he came to rescue us from sin and Satan and death and to die on the cross so we could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And that has changed my life. Would you like to hear about how he changed my life? Then they might say, nah. And you say, okay, God bless you, brother. But they might say, well, sure. And then you got a chance to tell your testimony. But it needs to be said Speak it out in a world of self-serving lies and twisted truths that are all trying to make everybody look better than they are. You know that story about the newspaper journalist that had to cover the Billy Graham campaign? I think I've told it from here before, but it's worth telling again. Everybody's making fun of him on Friday afternoon. Oh, yeah, you got to go to that holy roller meeting this weekend. And he goes to the meeting. Monday morning comes back and everybody around the water jug is saying, yeah, so how would you learn at that religious gathering? And he, in the same spirit of making fun, says, I learned that Jesus died for my sins. Ha, 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 ha. And he goes back to his office to write the article and that word beats him down into conviction of sin. Jesus died for my sin and the fact that he himself said it had the power to convict him and change him and cause him to accept what he had heard Billy Graham preach. It needs to be said. Believe, obey the Great Commission, proclaim the good news. That's actually the Great Commission in Mark. Go to the ends of the earth and proclaim the good news to all creatures. And then finally, let your light so shine. Peter says this, and it says as much uh, down at the end of our passage in verse 19. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Matthew 5 commands us to let our light shine so that people see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Doing good to everyone, especially to your enemy. Blessing all the families on the earth in the name of the God of Abraham. 
Maybe you should find someone of the other political persuasion and do some good to them. Bless them. Pray for them. Love them. Practically give. Be generous. Be like Jesus in the lives of the people around you. Let's obey the gospel. Keith Green, in his great song about the sheep and the goats, makes this declaration at the end. The only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to the scripture, is what they did and didn't do. The gospel is to be obeyed. But why? Why does Peter say these things? He gives us a reason. First, the first reason we've already talked about, which is you are beloved. You are God's beloved. So you seek to obey and glorify him in everything you do and say and believe. But then he says, judgment is coming. The judgment is about to begin and it will begin with us, with the house of God. The glory of the reward is worth the affliction that we go through. Now, I don't know if you realize or have studied the fact that there are two judgment seats in the Bible. The first is well known. It's called the White Throne Judgment, and it's in Revelation where books are opened and the names that are written in the book of life enter into the rest and joy of their Lord. The names that are not found in that book are thrown into the lake of fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. Not prepared for us, by the way. But we go in the direction, the broad road of destruction and end up in the same destination that the devil is going to. But there's another judgment. It's called the Bema Seat. And that word comes from the Greek Olympics. At the finish line was a large seat, a high seat, where a judge sat to see who crossed the line first. And they put the, the wreath. It was a wreath of leaves, great honor and glory in that culture around the head of the winner. That's why Paul says, run in such a way that you will get the crown, that you will receive the reward of your efforts. Let me read a couple of passages from the New Testament that describe this idea because I think Peter is very motivated by this judgment, not of, of ultimate damnation, but of reward. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the Bema seat. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Matthew 12, Jesus declares that every word will be judged. Every word we speak will be judged and rewarded or we will suffer loss. Romans 2, 6 and 7, he will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Romans 8, 17 and 18, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15, each one's work will become manifest for the day, that's the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. 
The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as though through fire. How much of our work will survive the fiery trial and last for eternity? Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Luke says, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Not on earth, lay it up in heaven. Obey the gospel because judgment is coming. In conclusion, Christ's beloved suffer because he wills it for our good and for his glory. I know that some of you are going through fiery trials right now. Or maybe you have recently. In fact, I can even tell you that probably there's someone in our church that's going through a trial that's worse than yours. And I believe many of them, if not most, are according to God's will. And so I hope this word from Peter this morning encourages you in the fiery furnace of your trial that it's worth it. That your light momentary afflictions don't compare with the weight of glory that God is producing in you by firing you in this way. Christ, beloved, suffer, first of all, for identifying with Christ. Jesus is the only way, and he must be proclaimed even in a pluralistic world. More and more Christians will be tagged as evil bigots because our way is the only way. And that is looked on as the worst evil of all. But Christ must still be proclaimed in a loving, gentle way, but clear as light in the dark world. Hebrews 10, 32 and 34 says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Identifying with those who suffer. Remember Pastor Bill's story of the young man that was going to a summer job and asked for prayer at the beginning of the summer? The pastor said, yeah, I'll pray for you. When he came back, the pastor came and said, how did it go? Been praying for you. The boy said, well, thanks, pastor. I don't think anybody figured out I was a Christian. Not identifying with Christ can make your life easy here but you might just forfeit the weight of glory that identifying yourself as a Christian and saying, I follow Jesus will give you in the end. Remember what Moses did, cited in Hebrews 11, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of Christ, of God, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? It says because he was looking to his reward. Identify with Christ. He will be all there is in the end. 
Secondly, those who are beloved suffer resistance against sin. This is what Peter means when he says, don't suffer as a murderer. Did you notice, by the way, that that list of sins is sort of a a diminishing size? At first, they might say, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I'm not an evildoer. And then he ends with meddler. (laughs) Ha ha, there he got us all. Don't suffer as a meddler. Don't suffer as a gossip. Don't suffer as a lazy person. Don't suffer for sin. The suffering for sin has already been paid. Suffer resistance against sin. The prayer of every Christian should be what we sang a few minutes ago. Not my will be done, but thine, O Lord. And I'm afraid that too many Christian, supposedly Christian churches are preaching, come to Jesus and you can do whatever you want. And it's a lie. Resisting your own sin is part of the suffering that produces holiness in you. You cannot be a true believer in Christ and do whatever you want all the time. Without discipline, there is no discipleship. Learn to say no to yourself. That's what it means to identify with Christ and suffer in his name for his glory, and your pleasure. Finally, suffer the cost of obeying the gospel. In Ephesians 3, Paul declares his life purpose. I want to know Christ, he says. The power of his resurrection, that's salvation, that's new birth. But then what's the next step? The fellowship of sharing in his suffering. Let me tell you, in suffering, you come to know Jesus. Because all your Safety mechanisms are kicked out from under you, and you know that underneath are the everlasting arms. We climbed a 4,500 foot foothill of the Himalayas while I was in Nepal. There were two missionaries with me. You know them, Joshua Romano and Samuel Condori, that Calvary helped support. We, we, it, uh, normally for Nepalese, it takes about three hours to get to the top. For us, it took five. And that's because Josue pulled a muscle about halfway up. And everybody said, well, maybe we should call a motorcycle and you should go down. And he said, no, I'm not going to give up. I, I need to make it to the top. What he didn't know was that Samuel has had training in physical therapy as a soccer coach. And so every 15 minutes, Samuel would say, Josue, sit down, put your foot up here on my lap and let me massage it. Let me, he'd do this little kick thing with his foot and get the circulation going. And, and Josue would stand up and say, you know, I think I can go a little farther. And then 15 minutes later, he'd have to stop again, and we'd do the massage again. And I saw them walking arm in arm up that mountain and at the top. Josue, who, if you know him, tends to be a little bit blustery and proud. And Samuel's a little bit quiet and introverted. And Josue said, I have never loved and appreciated you more, Samuel. God has given us the fellowship of sharing and suffering. <laughs> The wonderful thing is when we went over, the, you know, that mountain had several peaks. So you look up and it's this, they're going straight up. So you look up and you think, okay, there it is. That's the top. I can make it there. And you get there and you go over the knoll and there's another peak. And you're thinking, this was not the top. I had to get up there. Okay, I think I can do it. And you get up there and there's another one. And in the end, there was about a quarter of a mile of stone stairway. Because this hill was a place that Hindus go up to the top to do festivals. And we thought we were all going to die because you're at 3,800 meters, over 10,000 feet above sea level. And every 10, 10 steps, your head starts spinning from lack of oxygen. 
But when we got to the top, went over that very top knoll, there were the Himalayas as far as we could see along the horizon. Snow-capped peaks that we had never seen in our lives. If you don't see them in life, it's just, you can't even exp express how majestic, how amazing the reward of going through that affliction and getting to the top and having a new perspective on the world, on life, on yourself, on your relationship. Suffer because you share in the cost of the gospel. Very small illustration of that. As we finished, Hebrews 12, 1 through 4 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's that great stadium where the World Cup is being played right now. All of the, the heroes of faith surround us as we march through this veil of tears. And the writer of Hebrews says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, he was not ashamed, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Yesterday, I got a call from prison. One of our mission members is in a prison in the Middle East somewhere. And he called me on the hall phone. He said he'd stood in line for a long time to get his chance, and he only had three minutes. But he wanted to tell me he was okay, except that he had to buy his own food, and he couldn't seem to access his account. Could we please figure out how to send some money? He said, you know, if Peter and Paul got to go to prison, who am I to think I shouldn't? I'm in, a, I'm in a prison with all the intellectuals, and it's the perfect place to be a witness. Would that be my attitude if I were in his shoes? I'm glad he doesn't have a family. And I'm glad he's there. Because that's the race laid out for him. And he's running it joyfully with perseverance. And I pray he gets released tomorrow. But not one minute before God's plan for his glory and our golden blessing eternally in his presence. How's your race going? Let's run and fix our eyes on Jesus. Pray with me as we finish. Maybe you don't know your beloved this morning. Would you open your heart to the son of his love? I believe he brought you here to hear this message. And that means he loves you. All you need to do is confess that you've been living your life for yourself and your own pleasure, your own glory. And you want to turn around, repent, and live for his glory. Confess that you're a sinner. There's no way you can make it to heaven, no matter how good you are. None of your good works pay for your bad works. He has paid it all. Trust him. Believe. Receive him as your Lord. And commit to following him and you will know that he loves you. But maybe you are a son of the king and you think that your reward is here. and You've been living in luxury or spending your time and money and efforts on your own pleasures instead of seeking God's kingdom first. Repent of that too. And dedicate yourself anew 
to suffer the resistance against sin, suffer the identity with Christ, and obey the gospel no matter what the cost. Father, we want Calvary to be a gospel church. We want this to be an agency of the kingdom of heaven. And so we dedicate ourselves not to live for our own pleasure, but to learn to pray and obey, not my will, but thine be done. In Jesus' name, amen.